If you have your Bibles, please open them to the book of Joshua, chapter 22. Uh, It is good to be back. I appreciate the um, prayers uh, for my family as I was gone. I I certainly appreciate the the work of Richard by stepping in and and preaching in my absence. Um, That is certainly something that he graciously did, but he did extraordinarily well. And I'm very thankful uh, for not only Psalm 22, but for Richard uh, and his God-given ability to bring the Word of God to us. And hopefully we have that same today as we hear from God's Word. This is the last sermon from the book of Joshua that we are going to have. And so we've had sort of a detailed overview of two major Old Testament books, Deuteronomy and then Joshua. It's, it's not just an overview. We were flying pretty high, maybe not at 30,000 feet, but a pretty comfortable couple thousand. Um, and it was fairly detailed. It t- took up most of the spring and the summer, uh, but we are coming to an end now. The two books are really nice pairs with one another. Deuteronomy focusing so much on the fact that God's promise would be true. The people are sinful. The people will fall away from the law. And even while Deuteronomy is telling us what the law means and telling us that we cannot keep the law, as Moses already knew with the people that surrounded him, nevertheless, the point of the book of Deuteronomy is God will make his promises come true. And then in the book of Joshua, what we have is the fulfillment of those promises. God is bringing about those promises by his people. As God is being shown to be not only the promise-making, but certainly the promise-keeping God. This first generation, as Joshua, is just such an incredibly positive book. This first generation both trusted in the word of God and acted upon it. Time and time again, we have depictions of this. And where there is failure, where there is sin, it is minor. It is dealt with. And the people go on to do what God has called them to do. It is not that God can only work through those who are obedient to him. We will find that in the book of Judges, there are judges that God raises up who frankly don't know anything about God. They seem far away and distant from God, and God can still use them. But one of the things we get from the book of Joshua is that God desires to work through those who know him, who trust his word, and who act upon it more than anything else. Here the book, though, in chapter 22, 23, and 24, takes a distinct turn. Previously, the book was focused on what either was happening or what had happened in the nation at that time. It was focusing on victories. It was focusing on events that had occurred and the victories that God had given to his people. But now there is a distinct forward look from 22, 23, and 24. Each of these chapters is a summoning of Joshua of a certain group of people or the entire nation together. And it is a charge both looking forward for things that could come up as difficulties. This would be the last major generation to have seen the great acts of God. Men who are still alive at this time would have seen God work in incredibly mighty ways. They would have known not only of the victories of the Holy Land, but they would have known of the crossing of the Jordan and the miracle that happened as God stopped the flow of the Jordan. They would have known of the victories not only in the promised land, but in the far side of the promised land. They would have known of the desert wanderings and the provision of manna and the provision of water in a place where food and drink do not exist. They would have known of God thundering on Sinai and they would have known what it was for God to drown their enemies in the Red Sea. These men would have seen it, but their children would not have. 
And so there is a distinct looking forward in the book of Joshua. What happens when people who have not experienced what we have experienced will have to face the dangers of the land? How will they maintain their holiness before God? How will people who have not seen the great acts of God continue to trust and believe in a God whose very existence is known by his great acts of power? We find that as these people begin to become less warrior-like and more farmer-like, that the fight is not over. They must continue to fight for their holiness before God. Briefly, as we've talked about God being holy, 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 it is important that we stop and talk about what holiness is sort of in a larger framework. For most of us, when we hear holy, we think of simply moral uprightness. We think of someone being holy when they do that which is good and right. They're a holy person, almost strictly in terms of, well, morality. And it's not that the word doesn't imply that, but it implies more than that. Holiness is first and foremost a uniqueness. God is thrice holy. He is the holiest because there is nothing like him. There are a lot of people like you, and there's a lot of people like me in the world, but there's only one God, and there is no one like him. So he is the holiest of the holy. But then those who become associated with him are also holy. They are set aside because they are God's people. We know that this has the meaning of holy because even things that cannot have morality at all are called holy. The utensils in the temple are holy to the Lord. The Sabbath day, which has no ability to be moral or immoral, is holy to God. It is set aside for him. So how will the people maintain their status as the people of God? How will they cling to God? What are problems that could come up that would separate them from God by doing immoral things like falling into idolatry? That is the context, the fight for holiness of these three chapters. We need to say at the very beginning that this is not just a problem for the people of Israel. This is our problem as well. We find ourselves in much the same situation that the people of Joshua did. For all intents and purposes, the war is over in the book of Joshua. The promised land has been conquered. It is all but done. There are skirmishes here. There are battles still to be done, but for all real major meaning, the war is over. And yet still we know that there are battles to be fought. This isn't terribly different than what we find in the New Testament. Jesus has conquered over all of our foes. He has freed us from sin and he has given us his Holy Spirit because of the work that he has done on the cross where he stood in our place taking our penalty. Therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. And at the same time, he has won victory over those who would be our enemies. That victory is assured and final by the fact that Jesus is risen from the grave. We have no doubt that those who stay in faith in him will be conquerors. Yet at the same time, there are still battles to be fought. We must take seriously warnings like in Hebrews 6 and even in Colossians 1, which we will visit again, that there are warnings that you cannot fall away from the faith and think that you are okay. You cannot fall into idolatry and believe that you will get a pass because you once walked an aisle or because you once sang a song or because you once prayed a prayer in your heart, no matter how much you might have meant it. So we turn then to Joshua chapter 22. First, we find that in the fight for holiness, there is a fight for holiness 
internally. Here in Joshua 22, it is between two factions of Israel. For us, it is within our own congregation, those people that we know and think of as Christians already. We must fight for holiness internally. Joshua calls the two and a half tribes who live east of the Jordan, whose inheritance was east of the Jordan, Gad, Reuben, and the half tribe of Manasseh, and he calls them to basically commend them for their work. When they first asked for an inheritance outside of the promised land. Moses was not terribly keen on giving it to him because he thought that they would just settle down there, having already won that land, that they would stop their pursuit of what God had promised the people of Israel and just settle down in their land. And so he made them swear that they would rise up and they would go into the land with their brothers and defeat the nations in the land before they went back to their own inheritance. Joshua, in this passage, is then commending them for doing that. However, we read on their way back out of the promised land to cross the Jordan to go into their inheritance east of the promised land. The eastern tribes do this beginning in verse 10. And when they came to the region of the Jordan that is in the land of Canaan, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh built there an altar by the Jordan, an altar of imposing size. And the people of Israel heard it and said, Behold, the people of Reuben and the people of Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh have built an altar at the frontier of the land of Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel. And when the people of Israel heard it, the whole assembly of the people of Israel gathered at Shiloh to make war against them. Immediately we have the threat of civil war. The people before they cross over on the west side of the Jordan have built an altar and it's no small altar. It's an altar of imposing size. And when people from Israel see it, they are concerned. They're concerned because it seems like the people who live on the east side of the Jordan are going to offer worship here. Perhaps worship to a different God. Perhaps some strange worship to Yahweh. Perhaps even thinking that they can offer worship to Yahweh here. The problem is, of course, that God has already said in his word that you can't just set up an altar anywhere. You can't worship me however you would like. Denying God's word in that, thinking that you can come to God however you want to, is a very small step away from idolatry and thinking that you can approach any God you want to. So the people come out armed for war. Those tribes that are on the west side of the Jordan know inherently the difficulties that are found with this altar. They know the dangers that are found in this altar. That if the eastern tribes think for a second that they can worship a different God or worship God in a different way, that their holiness with God will be broken and so they come out armed for war. But what we find is that they do not engage in war, but instead they call to Reuben, they call to Gad and to the half-tribe of Manasseh, and they ask them to explain themselves. They know that the danger is there, and the danger exists for everyone. It is not just danger for those who would do the worship, as though we think oftentimes that danger is only inherent individually, that your sin is your sin, and it doesn't affect me. The people of Israel know better, and they know better because they've lived it. Look in verse 20. The western tribes say, Did not Achan, the son of Zerah, break faith in the manner of devoted things? And wrath fell upon all the congregation of Israel. And did he not perish al- and he did not perish alone for his iniquity. That is, when they took the city of Jericho, all of the spoil from that was to be given in destruction to the Lord. 
But Achan thought that he could keep some of it, hide it under his tent, and maybe have it for later. Then when the people of Israel attacked Ai, 36 of them fell dead. The leaders clearly remembered this, and they know that if Reuben and Gad and the half-tribe of Manasseh fall, all of Israel will fall with them. And so they come out, they know that it is worth fighting for. They know that it is worth killing some of them, going to war with them, so that they will know the difficulties that are inherent here. But they don't just go to war. They come and they reason with their brothers. And this is excellent in almost every way. Friends, when there is internal sin and strife, we need to do both of these things. We need to both be armed and be willing to listen. Too many times, Christians make the the mistake of keeping one and expelling the other. People come ready for a fight. They come armed to the teeth and ready to lay down destruction and wrath where they go because of some perceived sin that is in their midst. They are ready to divide the people of God right down the middle because they think that sin has occurred. They are unwilling to listen. They are unwilling to realize that there is disagreements between people at times and maybe they don't understand everything. But there are also those on the flip side that are so willing to have open lines of communication, to begin a a dialogue about sin and to listen to people interact. They are so empathetic and sympathetic that they refuse to arm themselves to deal with sin as they must. Neither one of those is safe and neither one of those is good. Listen to how Paul talks, much like the Western tribes, in 2 Corinthians 10. This Corinthian congregation that was so fraught with difficulties, Paul writes, I, Paul, myself entreat you by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He entreats them. I, who am humble when face to face with you, but bold toward you when I am away, I beg of you that when I am present, I may not have to show boldness with such confidence as I count on showing against some who suspect us of walking according to the flesh. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging a war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. He warns them. He comes to them by talking to them, by saying, you need to know that there will be a war being waged here and I will come armed to the teeth with the Spirit of God and I am ready to fight for what is good and holy and true for your own good. But no, I am warning you beforehand. I've come to you in the meekness and the gentleness of Christ, pleading with you that that might not happen. This is precisely how we handle sin internally. We are ready to fight for what is good and for what is holy according to God's word, but we are also ready to entreat, to plead, and to listen to people. For their side, the eastern tribes have a point. Listen to what they say beginning in verse 21. The people of Reuben, the people of Gad, and the half-tribe of Manasseh said in answer to the families of Israel, the mighty one, God, The Lord, the mighty one, God, the Lord, he knows. And let Israel itself know, if it was in rebellion or in breach of faith against the Lord, do not spare us today for building an altar to turn away from following the Lord. Or if we did so, 
to offer burnt offerings or grain offerings or peace offerings on it. May the Lord himself take vengeance. No, but we did it from fear that in the time to come your children might say to our children, what have you to do with the Lord, the God of Israel? For the Lord has made the Jordan a boundary between us and you. You and the people of Reuben and the people of Gad, you have no portion in the Lord. So your children might make our children cease to worship the Lord. It seems like a small thing, the Jordan River. It's not really that wide and it's not terribly deep. I remember growing up um, when video games were 8-bit things um, and then even younger when they were found on several floppy disks about the size of my face. Uh, my face was a little bit smaller when I was a kid, but not too terribly much. We had a computer lab in Seabird Elementary, and they had two games that everyone prized, one of which was Where in the World is Carmen Sandiego, and the other one was Oregon Trail. I learned two things from Oregon Trail. One is, if I traveled west of the Mississippi, I was in grave danger of dying of dysentery. There was no way I was ever going to make it out to Oregon, because I never did. The other thing that I learned as a young man is that ox will always die the second they step foot in a river. Okay? Fording rivers is dangerous stuff. It's not an inconvenience, like when some bloke is trying to get his sailboat out to the bay here in Bay City and you've got to wait 15 minutes for that bridge to raise and lower. It was dangerous and it was difficult. And it created, created a very distinct boundary marker. The lines of the promised land were indeed at the Jordan River. That is the continual and ever-present reality. That Jordan River is a designation between the promised land and that which is not. And the eastern tribes know because we are on the far side. There is a danger in the future of the western tribes forgetting that we even belong to them. After all, we are outside the land. Notice, notice, this is not misfounded. There's already evidence that it's happening. Go back to verse 12 or to verse 11. I'm sorry. Listen to how the eastern tribes, excuse me, listen to how the western tribes speak of where this altar is. They built an altar at the frontier of the land in Canaan in the region about the Jordan on the side that belongs to the people of Israel, meaning the other side doesn't belong to the people of Israel. They have already started to create a distinction. Joshua isn't even dead yet. They're worried about their future, and rightly so, it seems. And they're worried that they themselves will be counted as unholy because of where they are living. If the Western tribes are worried, and rightly worried, about present sin amongst the people of Israel, the eastern tribes are rightly worried about future problems. And the altar then is created simply to be a a comfort for them, to be a warning to the people of the West, to be preventative care. We are to be both surgeons and doctors. We have to be people who are willing to cut out sin when we find it, to do very surgical maneuvers with our words and with our friends that we might cut out sin where we find it, but we also need to be involved in preventative care. That is making sure that sin doesn't pop up its ugly head. So many times we have Paul speaking like this as well. In Romans 15, we read this, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. 
For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accordance with Jesus Christ, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God. Were dissensions creeping up in Romans? There's absolutely no evidence that they were there, but Paul knows that it's only a hair's breadth away. And so he warns them, just because you think that you're strong in faith and you think somebody else is weak in the faith, you don't get to look down on them. You need to work hard to honor them. This is preventative care. This is how we fight for holiness eternally. We find sin and we find opportunities for sin. We cut it out and we cut it off at the pass. Second, we must fight for holiness externally. In Joshua 23, we fight for holiness externally. Joshua was, we will begin reading in verse 6. Be very strong to keep and do all that is written in the book of the law of Moses, turning aside from it neither to the right hand nor to the left, that you may not mix with these nations remaining among you or make mention of the names of their gods or swear by them or serve them or bow down to them, but you shall cling to the Lord your God just as you have done to this day. For the Lord has driven out before you great and strong nations. And as for you, no man has been able to stand before you to this day. One man of you puts to flight a thousand since it is the Lord your God who fights for you just as he promised you. Be very careful, therefore, to love the Lord your God. For if you turn back and cling to the remnant of these nations remaining among you and make marriages with them, so that you associate with them and they with you know for certain that the Lord your God will no longer drive out these nations before you, but they shall be a snare and a trap for you, a whip on your side and thorns in your eyes until you perish from off this good ground that the Lord your God has given you. Joshua's concern is not just that they uphold the law that God has given to them. Joshua's concern is he knows that the land is still potmarked with these foreign peoples who worship foreign gods. And even outside of that, even if they were to drive all of them out and have this nice enclave of only holy Israel, that on the borders there exist these gods and there exist these peoples. And there is the ever-present danger of mixing with them and intermingling with them. What Joshua is not concerned with is that these people are going to proselytize, are going to evangelize the Israelites. He's not worried that they're going to say, come on, worship Baal. Rather, Joshua understands that there is entropy in our lives, that we are prone to go in one direction and one direction only. And while we are in the flesh, that direction is always towards sin. That direction is always toward idolatry. We never, ever on our own accord swim upstream, but we always float downstream, away from God and toward his enemies, towards idols that are worthless and cannot speak or hear or act for us. And Joshua knows that simply their presence and being there, unless Israel fights against it continuously, will always draw them away. 
This is played out again and again and again in the rest of the Old Testament. The ever-present gravity of having false gods around is a lure and a draw to the people of Israel. And it is to us. Just as Israel is called to be holy, the same call for holiness that's placed on Israel is placed on us. You are to be holy for I am holy. Israel was to drive the nations out, but we, we don't have that luxury. We cannot run to the hills. We cannot make our own little enclave of Christian living and leave the nations to themselves because our Christ has given us a commandment to go into all the world and to make disciples of all the world. That demands that we interact with the world. We can't run from it. That's the whole reason why he has left us here. That is the whole reason why he has not come It is because he is gracious to the nations that we are to go to them and convert them with the gospel. The gospel that Jesus Christ has come and died for the sins of the nations, for people who have not yet heard the gospel. He has indeed died for them that they might know him and the glory of God the Father, that their sins have been paid for by him and that he has conquered over their evil. That Father The Father is no longer wrathful against them, but he has purchased from every tribe, tongue, and nation a people for his Son, Jesus Christ. That is our duty to take that message to the nation. So we cannot just hold ourselves up. We must interact with the world, but we must do so carefully. We must be as wise as serpents and as innocent as doves. How are we supposed to do this? Well, there are a number of things that we will mention briefly because, frankly, we just don't have time to go through them all. First, let's make very clear that there is a sincere warning here. Joshua will turn back around and all of the goodness of God, Joshua makes very clear that if you sin against him and you persist in that sin, there is evil here as well. Listen to what Joshua says beginning in verse 14. I am about to go the way of all the earth, and you know in your hearts and souls, all of you, all of you know that not one word has failed of all the good things the Lord God has promised concerning you. That is the verse. That is the idea of the book of Joshua. God has spoken it, and it has happened, and it has come true. God has made promises, and indeed he has kept them. But now Joshua is going to turn that on them. Not one of them has failed, but... Just as all the good things that the Lord your God promised concerning you have been fulfilled for you, so the Lord will also bring upon you all the evil things until he has destroyed you from off of this good land that the Lord your God has given you if you transgress the covenant of the Lord your God which he commanded you and go and serve other gods and bow down to them. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you and you shall perish quickly from off of the good land that he has given to you. You might think, well, that is just Old Testament stuff. We have a God who has promised us. We are a church that believes in election. We are a church that believes in preservation of the saints. We think that people not only are saved by God eternally from before the foundation of the world, but that he keeps them in his hands. He holds them. We even sing a song. He will hold me fast. He will always protect his own. But we are believe that preservation of the saints means not only that God will preserve his saints, but also the saints are the ones who persevere. 
there are real warnings in the New Testament about falling away from faith. Colossians 1, 21 through 23. And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, he has now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, if you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a minister. There is a real warning here. That warning for Christians becomes an immediate clarion call to come back to God. It isn't that the warning isn't real. It's only that the warning for Christians is always effective. When we hear the warning and you are a Christian, you run from that which would separate you from God because the Holy Spirit leads you that way. But nevertheless, this is a real warning. Secondly, be very aware of how you can be tempted. Sometimes we are prone to think that Satan tempts people and Satan oppresses people only how he does it in the Middle East or in China. We hear of the oppressive governments. We hear of death and imprisonment. We hear of these things in the New Testament. We hear of them in history. We hear of them currently. And we think this is the way that Satan works. And we think, oh, the poor Chinese. They labor under underground churches without being able to publicly proclaim their faith, always wondering if today is the day that they're going to be imprisoned. And indeed, that is a horrific thing, and I'm not trying to lessen it at all, but I will say this, that is only one side of the equation. Yes, there is a beast that rules over the earth that tries to crush the church, but there is also a false prophet. And you are easily led astray by the good things of this world. Listen to how Deuteronomy puts this. The difficulties of blessings and privilege. Take care, Deuteronomy 8, verses 11 through 17. Take care lest you forget the Lord your God by not keeping his commandments and his rules and his statutes, which I command you today, lest when you have eaten and are full and have built good houses and live in them, and when your herds and flocks multiply and your silver and gold is multiplied and all that you have is multiplied, then your heart be lifted up and you forget the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, who led you through the great and terrifying wilderness with its fiery serpents and scorpions and thirsty ground where there was no water, who brought you water out of the flinty rock, who fed you in the wilderness with manna that your fathers did not know, that he might humble you and test you to do good in the end. Beware lest you say in your heart, my power and the might of my hand have gotten me this wealth. There is a real danger for God's people in prosperity. There is a real danger in the silver and the gold of the world to lead you astray from God, to think that this stuff that you have gotten is all of your life, to think that you have gotten this by your own hands and to not give God glory for it. Revelation 3, 14 through 18 says much the same. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Why will he do it? Not just because they're lukewarm. Why will he spit them out of my mouth? Verse 17, for you say, I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
There is a great disaster for so many people in the church who think that because they have wealth or because they are healthy or because God has been kind to them in blessing, that God is always going to bless them. That is a lie. Earthly blessings do not mean that God is either with you or against you. So we must run from this. We must battle against it. We must battle it by keeping God's word in our heart by listening to our conscience, we must battle it by having people who can speak to us when we are going astray. We must battle it by making sure that everything we do, everything we buy, everything we pass through our lips, everything and every action that we take, we are doing for the glory of God. We must fight for holiness externally. The most important way we do this is number three, we fight for holiness daily. Chapter 24 of the book of Joshua is probably, along with the first chapter, the best known specifically for verse 14. But before he gets to verse 14, Joshua recounts many things that are very important. He recounts very briefly the entire history of Israel. In doing so, he reminds them that Abraham was not this paradigm of virtue and of godliness for his whole life. As a matter of fact, he reminds them that Abraham was himself a pagan. He reminds them that their fathers in Egypt were pagans, that they worshiped those gods. He reminds them of the lure of the gods who were outside of the promised land as they were wandering in the wilderness. He reminds them of all the ways that they were lured away from that. And then in verse 14, he says this, now therefore fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt and serve the Lord. And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. In Psalm 95, the psalmist writes somewhat innocuously, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Certainly that, that is written from the time of the psalmist. The, the day that he was thinking of was the day that he wrote it. But the book of Hebrews comes back and says that that, that little word today means so much more than what it might have meant to the psalmist. It, it means not just that day, but it means any day that is called today. Hebrews three thirteen through 15. Exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For as we have come to share in Christ, indeed, we hold our original confidence firm to the end, as it is said today, if you hear his voice. Do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. That is indeed the exact same sentiment that we should get out of Joshua. Today, choose who you will serve. You don't get to choose on April 25th, 1983. You didn't choose on August 17th, 1997. You didn't choose yesterday. You need to choose today who you will serve. The gospel is not a one-time thing that is good for you and then it fades into irrelevance of history. The gospel is for you today. The gospel is for you every day. It is to feed you and to nourish you and to keep you holy daily because you need it daily. 
There's a reason why we come back here week after week after week. There's a reason why the Bible exhorts you to pray daily, to study scripture daily, to know God daily, because it is daily that you need him. Joshua looks at those people and says, today, choose who you will serve this day, whether the gods your father served or the God whom has worked great things for you. Today, friends, is the day for you to choose. It is not tomorrow. It is not 14 years ago. It is not even yesterday. Yesterday is gone. Today, you need to choose whom you will serve. Will you serve the God of gold and silver? Will you serve gods that you have made with your own hands? Will you serve the God that is in your belly? Or will you serve Jesus Christ, who once and for all has won a victory over all of your foes, including even the wrath of God that he has absorbed for you? so that you might be free from sin. You might be holy to God, as Paul himself has said, holy and blameless and without blemish before him. That is for you today. Christian, these warnings are real. If you are a Christian, you need to run to him. But if you are not a Christian, all the more run to him today. It is free and available for you. The gospel sits there. It calls for belief and it calls for trust. So then, as long as this day is called today, remember, friends, that we have no good thing, nothing in this world, save Christ. Everything that is around us will fade, will molt, will rot, disintegrate, wear out, fade and perish. Every single ounce of success that you have had in your life will be forgotten sometimes within a matter of months of your passing. Your money will not serve you long. No, today, let us remember that our only good, our only hope, our only pleasure, and our only comfort, and our only victory is in Jesus Christ. Indeed, all we have is Christ. Let us pray. Father God, We give you great praise today for you are wrathful. You are angry about sin. You are not slow to punish, but you will bring your wrath quickly. And Father, we have fear before you lest we fall away, but we also have great confidence because we have a great high priest. One who will stand up for us in a time of trouble, one who will plead our case before you, one who is holy where we are unholy, one who is righteous although we are unrighteous, one who has stood in our place while we were yet sinners. Christ has died for us and therefore we know that you love us. We claim nothing before you. No good works of ours will ever make us right to you. Nothing that we can possibly do will ever earn us favor before you. So we come to you claiming only Jesus Christ, pleading for his righteousness, for your forgiveness and for the Holy Spirit to continually make us into his image that we might be holy and blameless before you. We pray for these things in the strong name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen.